Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. What if you could remember every day of your life, starting at a young age, with the same detail that you remember yesterday? Well, I think it's kind of cool because I can always call up people on their birthday. I don't have to look it up or their anniversaries or when we met. That is kind of cool. But if you could remember every day like it was yesterday, then that includes the hard days, too. Whenever I like wake up on a day where something really bad happened on that day, I, I always feel like I kind of relate that emotion and what I was experiencing on that day. Hear from two of only about 60 people in the world who are known to have highly superior autobiographical memory, or HSAM. Plus, the world expert in HSAM talks about what we can learn from this ultra-rare condition. Memory is our most important ability. We are our memories. Everything that we do depends upon things that we have learned, right? Can't live without it. Yeah, so if memory is so important, why aren't, why aren't we all like that? I'm Kyone Wolf. Remember to stay tuned for Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Remember yesterday? I remember, more or less, How about seven days ago? I mean, you know, give me a minute and maybe if I look in my calendar or social media feeds, I can remember a thing or two. How about a month ago? A year ago? How many things can you remember about August 22nd of your 13th year? I got nothing. And even if August 22nd of your 13th year was really memorable for some reason, You probably don't remember the day of the week it was on, the weather that day, the headlines in the paper, or what you were wearing. But the people you're going to meet today can remember those things, and more, as if they were remembering yesterday. They have a condition called Highly Superior Autobiographical Memory, or HSAM. For some, it's awesome. For a few, it's very, very difficult. And for the most part, it's complicated. Our first guest, Dr. James McGaw, says there are only about 60 people in the world who are known to have it, and he might be the person in this world who knows the most about this condition, besides the people who have it, of course. He's a professor at the University of California, Irvine, where he studies the neurobiology of learning and memory. Let's get started with some defining characteristics of HSAM. These are individuals who can remember most of the days of their lives, um, starting at about five years of age. They can recall those in some degree and uh, with a degree of reliability also. And they are not autistic savants so that they, they don't do calendar calculation, but they know the calendar. So I can ask them something that is even 20 years ago, and they will tell me the date and the day. But if I ask them to tell me the the day of the week for June 3rd, uh, 2027, they say that's crazy. So what the characteristic, main characteristic is that they remember in some detail uh, most of the days of their lives. And that's simply put. Uh, It doesn't extend to any other ability. They are not good learners of ordinary material. Uh, none has claimed to has claimed to excel 
in school or in college. That is, that's not to say they're not successful, but that's the, the ability to, to remember the details of their personal life has not transferred to the ability to learn other things well in life. Their memory of, let's say, 15 years ago is much like your and my memory of yesterday. And that's the major characteristic of disability. Take me back to the year 2000 when you met the first person who you know of who has HSAM. Well, this uh, subject, uh, Jill Price, as the name, uh, and I can say that because she wrote a book, The Woman Who Can't Forget. And uh, I've studied memory all my life, and I've never heard of anything like this. Uh, she wrote the, the, uh, an email to me and said, I have a memory problem, and I'd like to meet you. And I said, well, I can direct you to someone who deals with memory problems. You know, what you would say if somebody said they had a memory problem. Right, define problem, too. Yeah, she said, no, I, I don't forget. So I agreed to meet with her, and then that started the long series in which we met with her in detail and got some publicity, including NPR was one of the early publicity we got. Not that we wanted publicity, it just, it just happened. So we got uh, more and more subjects uh, based on that, and that's how it all started. So we decided to look into it. When Jill got in touch with you about her problem with her memory, what was getting under her skin about it, that she found you and wrote to you? Because some people may be hearing about this and they can't fathom what, the, what would be wrong with it. Well, it's, it's discussed in her book, The Woman Who Can't Forget, so I, I feel free that I can say uh, she was excessively anxious because she claims that she remembers a lot of bad things. And she would lot, like not to be uh, have to obsess uh, with all of these things that she believes were bad things in her life. Now, of course, we've all had good things and bad things in our lives also. So it's not as though she's unique in that respect, but she did pay a lot of attention to it. Now, the fact that she had that ability enabled her to do it, you see, so that she can remember most of the days of her life, which remembers, which means that she can remember the unfortunate things that happened in her life. And most of us can remember good things and bad things. But as time goes on, we sort of, you know, it slides away. And, and for the most part, well, it doesn't slide away from her because she has such detailed memory of her past. On the, on the other hand, I have been privileged to interview subjects who delight in the ability because they remember so many good things in their life, you see. So it's not as though if you have this ability that you're destined to be bothered by it, having this ability is a pleasure to some. When Jill got in touch with you and you invited her up to your research center at the University of California, Irvine, now, of course, you didn't know her or her life, so you wouldn't know if she was telling the truth about what shirt she was wearing about on March 13th of 1987. So, so how did you test Jill Price when she came in? Well, I, I was totally unprepared for this because there's, there's nothing in the literature that, you know, there, I couldn't turn to a journal. That was a scientist usually do. You turn to a, an article someplace to get an idea for it if it's not quite on your field. So I had received a, a gift uh, for Christmas. Remember, this was the turn of the century, uh, 2000. So I had a large book. It was a day by day of the previous century and a, an article, a newspaper article for every day in the last century. 
So I just opened that up to uh, pages uh, uh, 10, 15, 20 years before, and I just opened it up and I found something which was reasonably prominent, like an airplane crash or major political act or something about a politician or something about a, an actor or an actress, something of that kind. And I would say, what happened on this day? And then she would tell me, or I would give an event and say, when did this event occur? She would tell me. It was phenomenal because uh, she was remarkably accurate in telling me what happened on a particular day. And I was looking right at it. And I remember one case in particular is I, I asked her what happened on this particular day. And she didn't know. And I said, well, it was a day that the Iranians em invaded our uh, embassy in Iran. And she said, oh, no, no, it was three days earlier. And I said, well, I'm looking right at here. And I said, I've got the article. She said, no, the, the article is wrong. It's three days earlier. So I checked and I found that she was right. And I also found that the I was looking at the date of the article and the, the date of the invasion was embedded in the middle of that article. When you would confirm that somebody had HSAM and you told them, all right, you're one of the few, how would they react? Oh, they, they liked it quite a bit. As a matter of fact, they, many of them regarded it as a special kind of club that they belonged to. And they would, when they got together, they would quiz each other. It's kind of interesting to watch, to watch them quiz. Uh, some of them keep in contact with each other to this day. Now, we ended up studying 60 of the people a lot because we were able to verify that they really had this condition to a substantial degree, but they do vary in, in their abilities. Some people have it weekly and some people have it intensively. Uh, but we also know that it's not a, a US phenomenon or a Canadian phenomenon, it's all over the world. The, the, the group that's more, most active in research right now is in Rome, Italy. Uh, I gave a, a lecture over there a few years ago and that generated interest. Now they have a whole uh, research program uh, over in Italy investigating the people there. But we learned all that in a, in a, in a, in a few years. Uh, th this was a, a buried phenomenon, a buried phenomenon which uh, Jill Price revealed to the world. And now it is an established phenomenon as a a specific kind of memory ability. At some point, you put these people in MRI machines, right? A structural MRI uh, was done in the laboratory here at University of California, Irvine, by my colleagues, um, Craig Stark and his group, uh, together with me and some other people. And uh, that was just to look at the structure of the brain. And uh, Craig uh, found some regions of the brain that differed in uh, size and shape, but the results were not the kind that would lead you to an insight because they, were, they didn't provide any kind of an organizational, organizational insight. It's just, yes, we can say that of the HSAM subjects that we looked at in comparison with controls of match for age and, and education and so on, there were some significant differences, but nothing jumped out from that. Now, currently, the, the group that uh, I initiated in Rome, Italy, is looking at the function of the brain uh, using functional MRI. And they have found that the, the brains of uh, subjects who have this ability uh, differ during retrieval. 
And so it, it, it suggests that maybe a contributor to this ability is something in the brain that is involved in retrieving the information. Now, let me play that out. Let's suppose, for example, that we have memories or the, the substrate of memories in our brain, you and I do, just like the HSAM subjects do. Just imagine that for a moment. We have all the memories. You, you, you know what you had for, for lunch uh, 12 years ago on a, on a Tuesday in March. It's in there somewhere. Yeah, it's in there. Let's just imagine that for a moment. Perhaps it is the case that Jill Price and others have a better ability of pulling that out, of retrieving the information. It's there, and it's a question of access. Now, you, you think about for a moment, there, there's a well-known phenomenon that's been studied intensely, which is called the tip of the tongue phenomenon. And we all know what it is. Uh, is somebody asks you, what was, what was the, the name of that uh, of that stuff that we had for dinner uh, last March and we liked so much and say, oh, I can't quite remember. And then 45 minutes later, it pops in your head. What does that tell us? That tells us that you set in motion a retrieval system that has a life of its own. And it's going throughout your brain, digging on the information. And long after you've lost interest in it, it says, oh, here it is. Knowing that, uh, I think that suggests with some credibility the possibility that the major difference that these have, the subjects have in comparison with us, is that we ha they have a system in their brain that is just more effective at digging out information, such as where Bing Crosby was when he died. Uh, you know, who cares? Or when, when did it rain in, in New York City 20 years ago? Who cares? And the brain says, okay, I'll find that for you. It may take a second. But for those, the other, the other thing I should say is that for these people, it doesn't take very long. It just pops right in and it comes out very quickly. Of all the people who we know have this condition, is there anything, anything at all they have in common, any personality traits, countries of origin, general outlooks, dispositions, other abilities, anything at all that they have in common besides being a human animal? Yeah, they're all obsessive compulsive. Not only do they tell us that, uh, they, they display it, but also when we test them using a standardized test for obsessive compulsiveness, they are statistically uh, different from our controls. It takes different forms. Um, some are germ uh, avoidance, so they have to wash. If, if the keys drop on the floor, they have to wash them before they use them. Uh, and some of them are um, obsessive in, in uh, saving things. Jill Price, uh, I think, has every magazine that she uh, ever acquired. All of her dolls, she has every doll that she's ever had in her life, she, she still has. It's in her book. You, you can see it. So uh, I, I can say with some degree of assurance that obsessive compulsiveness is a, a component. And by the way, it's not necessarily bad because uh, some of the, uh, uh, the subjects who have it is quite adaptive for them. So it, it's not uh, anything they need to, you know, to worry about or it's not a bad trait. It's just the way they are. So are these two connected? I mean, did, when you knowing the brain the way you do, or does it make sense that they have OCD and HSAM? Yes and no. Uh, the no is we don't know. The yes is that uh, there is a, a region of the brain which is active in uh, these uh, subjects. 
when they engage in this, and it's, it's a region of the brain that's also involved in obsessive compulsiveness. And that's a region in the caudate, region of the caudate in the central part of the brain. And so that might provide a partial explanation that this is the same region of the brain and it's having these two things, but it'll take an awful lot of work to, to verify that. That takes additional work. But we have some hints. We have some hints at that, yeah. Has there been any evidence so far that we know of that this is genetic? No. Uh, there are two groups we're collaborating with who've been working on this for several years, and they have not obtained any significant evidence of this. They're still working on it, though, by the way, so it's still under investigation. We also have a case of identical twins that we've studied. Uh, they're boys. We started studying them when they were about nine years old, and now they're teenagers. One of them has this ability to an extraordinary degree, and the other one does not at all. So we checked, and we have verified that they are identical twins. But we've also verified that one of them has the ability and one does not. Uh, now we don't know what that means. This is, this is tough stuff. Is there anything that we folks of average memory abilities can learn from these HSAM subjects that can make us, if we'd like, better at remembering the mundane details of our day-to-day -day lives? I suppose so, but the question uh, is, do you want to? You see, the way, the way we're organized is that we let things slip by unless they're important. You don't need to remember every word that I said. You don't need to remember every phrase that I said. I know you're recording it, but you don't, you don't need to do that. But I'm going to say something to you, which is not true, absolutely not true, but I'm going to say it just to illustrate the point. You ready? I'm ready. You know, I've been interviewed by quite a few people over, over the years. Uh, I've never been interviewed by anybody who is nearly as stupid as you are. Damn. All right. That's not true, but I'm saying it to make a point. Very likely, this is the only thing that you're going to remember in detail about this interview. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, we remember the things that are important to us. And we are not so good at remembering the things that are not important to us, but we get along in life pretty well, nonetheless. I make the argument that that's a very um, effective way that we're designed because it ensures that we remember the important things. And I, I just think that this uh, supports my own view that is probably a pretty good idea to have the kind of brains that we do that selects for importance unless, and, 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 or if it's repeated, if it's important or repeated, uh, then we remember. If it's not, we let it slide, right? Do you need, do you need to remember the date uh, that the um, 737s crashed and killed 297 people? No, you don't, but the engineers at Boeing do. And I'm sure they remember the date and the time of the day that that happened. You need to remember, you needed to remember that um, we had this uh, interview coming up, you see, and I needed to remember that I had the interview coming up. I didn't, re I didn't need to remember uh, what's going to happen an hour from now, it'll just happen. So let me say this, uh, these people clearly have abilities that differ from normal. 
Uh, I think they have brains that differ from normal, both in structure and in function. But I don't think it makes a heck of a lot of difference. Uh, they get along in life pretty well, unless things get haywire. And we get along pretty well most of the time. Uh, we miss remembering things. But I think, by and large, uh, all of our brains are uh, pretty well tuned to what needs to be done in the world. Of course, the mysteries of the human brain are vast. So there's still a lot to know. What else is still eluding you about this condition? Like if you had a magic wand and you could answer one question about this, what would it be? It would be the question, how do their brains work to access this information? How do they get at it? And what goes on? And, and the problem is that in the neurobiology of learning and memory, we know a great deal about how memories are made. We know a great deal about the processes underlying the formation of memory. Not all that we'd like to know, but we know a great deal. Uh, we know less about the actions of the brain in taking advantage of the information that is there. And I think that that is a, an important horizon, an important area to get at. And maybe, uh, additional research with these HSAM subjects will provide new insights as to uh, that process. That would be my hope. Dr. James McGaw, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for talking with me. Nice to talk with you. For the record, we recorded our conversation about two weeks ago. And uh, yeah, yeah, I still remember when he said that he's never been interviewed by anybody nearly as stupid as I am. I hear it in my dreams. I've never been interviewed by anybody who is nearly as stupid as you are. Nearly as stupid as you are. As stupid as you are. Nearly as, as stupid, stupid as, as I am. So stupid. That's not true. Yeah, stupid. Anyway, when we get back. I was on Nightline and then 60 Minutes hit, then all the hit the fan, so to speak. Meet the fourth person in the world who is officially diagnosed with HSAM. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. You remember the last segment of the show, right? Where the lead researcher of people with highly superior autobiographical memory or HSAM told us about what we know and don't know about this condition? In a week, a month, a year, you might not remember much about what you heard. You won't remember what you're wearing right now as you hear my voice. You won't remember what you had to eat before the episode started. But Bob Petrella will remember where he was when he heard this show, what day of the week it was, what he did afterwards, and of course, all the details of when we recorded our interview on Monday, March 8th, 2021, for the rest of his life. Bob is a film studies professor at Santa Monica University, and he was the fourth person identified with HSAM. I asked him what were some of his first clues that his memory was exceptional. When I was a senior in high school, around that time in high school, when I would mention something, because I lived in a small town, so I had the same childhood buddies, you know, went to school for 12 years together. 
And I would mention something that happened to us as kids when we were, you know, I was 16 or 17. I mentioned something that happened to us when we were eight or 10 or something. I would say, well, you remember it was November 3rd. It was a Friday. And they'll go, well, wait a minute, what does that mean? And I said, well, you don't. So I thought everybody knew that November 3rd, 1961 was a Friday. As I got older, I knew that was a little different, but I thought, well, maybe it's kind of like being a redhead or left-handed. You know, maybe it's a small minority of the people or like that. But then I, as I got into my 40s in the 1990s, I thought, well, you know, I haven't met anyone like me. Although I did see Mary Lou Henner on The Tonight Show back in 1982, October 20th. And uh, she mentioned that, uh, I don't even think Carson was the host. Someone else was the guest host. And they were saying, you have this weird memory where you remember what you did on a lot of days of your life. And I said, oh, okay. So there's someone like that. Like she was the only one I had heard of through the years until the studies were done in 2007. So when I say a date, like September 4th, 1998, what happens in your mind? Like, what comes first? Is it a like a flash, an image from when you woke up that morning and then flashes of stuff that happened next? Or tell me what goes on when I say September 4th, 1998. When you say September 4th, what goes through our minds, I'm, I'm scanning through all these September 4ths I remember. Then when you say 1990, and then it kind of like focuses down to the, the 90s and the 1998, which by the way was the best day of the year in 19, it was a Friday. So what happened? Why was it so great? I, I was with my uh, office mate that I made her laugh and stuff. And it was just a thing. There was all this convergence of good things happening. And I and then I found out I was getting a raise for the second time. Because you were supposed to get a raise after three months. And then I got another raise within like six weeks later. And so that made it the best day of the year in 1998. It was just as of good things, good vibes, so to speak, happening on that day. That was also my 18th birthday. Oh, oh, wow. Wow. You, you don't look that. So, that old? Okay. <laughs> no, no. I thought you were more like a 1990 or <laughs> I think also I could be mistaken. I think it's around when Google was formed. You could look it up online. Okay. <laughs> When you were officially diagnosed with having H-SAM, how did that feel? It was kind of cool because uh, initially uh, I was only the fourth person identified and I thought there were more, but I went, wow. You know, because I thought, again, I thought it was like maybe 10 million people in the world, maybe even, you know, 50 million people. So when they said only the fourth person identified, and I remember there was a blurb about it in USA Today. And so I had sent it out to friends and they said, television producer identified. And I said, oh, that television producer is me. You know, I was so excited and stuff. So it was kind of cool to be, you know, that unique uh, and that renowned, so to speak. And then, of course, after that, I was on Nightline and then 60 Minutes hit. So, you know, then, you know, then all the hit the fan, so to speak, in a good way. When I interviewed Dr. McGaw, he said that many people who have HSAM they have in common that they have some form of OCD. Is that true for you? And if so, how does it manifest? For me, it's probably an obsession with numbers and dates. I was always fascinated with the calendar. Uh, in fact, when people say, when you think of a date, I see the calendar. You know, I see September 4th, 98, and I see, see the Friday. And I was always, you know, I was always fascinated with time. I think that's what it was. I was more fascinated with time and the passage of time and how people thought of different things, you know, through time 
and I do have OCD. Uh, I've gone to therapy for it, for not not this, but for OCD for other things, uh, which I have. I feel I have to. Val- I can't fall asleep until I validate something. Oh, I have to validate on what that line was from a movie or who played that role in a movie or something. And, and it's like a thing of well, it's not that important. Just go to sleep, you know. But but so you yeah. have to set something to rest before you can set yourself to rest. Right. Long answer again to your question. Yeah, we all have some type of, it's all related to OCD in some way or another. For those who say, having H, Sam, sounds freaking awesome. In what ways are they totally right? How is it awesome? Well, I think it's kind of cool because I can always, uh, I know when I can always call up people on their birthday, I don't have to look it up uh, or I don't have to see a Facebook reminder or anything or their anniversaries or when we met. You know, so it's always a relationship thing where you can reach out and go, happy anniversary, happy birthday. We met 30 years ago today. You know, we did this. We went through this crazy experience 20 years ago today. You know, so so stuff like that. I want to ask about the hardest part of having H. Sam, which I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you have access to memories that are really painful is that true? Is that the hardest part? Yeah, what it is, is when I see a date or a time, or I think of a period, and I'll go back, and I feel like um, it's kind of like having a time machine, an emotional time machine, where I feel like I'm really back there. Like if someone says 1975, and I can almost feel like I'm wearing that leisure suit, that polyester, I can feel the polyester leisure suit. Uh, you know, you can feel, I can uh, feel the big, heavy, set of hair I had, or just, you feel like you're back in that time. So the negative part, obviously, is going back in time when something bad happened, and you can feel that as well. And then all, all of a sudden, the memories are flooding back, and you feel exactly how you felt 30 or 40 years ago, which you you were aware of, your cognizant of it, of that time or that period, but then all of a sudden, you feel exactly like you did. So that's the downside of it when there's a negative experience. And of course, you you can look at it as you can learn from your negative experiences, maybe on a screw up that you had, you can uh, learn from that. And, you know, so, so you look at it, the positive spin is, well, I'm glad I'm not back in that time again, where you just learn from it and go, well, I'm glad I learned from that negative experience. Because you remember so clearly, maybe things you've screwed up. Like in my life, I have definitely screwed up or said something stupid or uninformed, and maybe it'll keep me up at night that night, but part of me is going to be thinking, you know, I've lived long enough to know that eventually I'm going to forget about this for the most part. Because I know that my embarrassing memory will dull, I wonder if that means that I'm maybe more likely than you to let myself screw up again, because I'm probably going to kind of forget about it. But since you aren't going to forget about it, do you think that your memory makes it so you are more careful to avoid mistakes or do things that you'll regret because you know you're going to have to live with them in a way that I really don't. Well, yeah, it probably, again, it makes you more aware, more cognizant. I'll go, don't do that again. But at the same time, where the OCD kicks in for me, it's like uh, when you're experiencing that bad, you you keep thinking, well, am I going to do the same thing that I did 20 years ago? So there, there's that. So it's a double-sided thing. 
just like no one taught you how to have this highly superior autobiographical memory, I imagine there's a limit to how much you can help people like me get better at remembering the details of my life. But that being said, are there any tips that you have for we non-HSAM folks to strengthen our memories? Yeah, I think what it is, is uh, I always tell people to uh, absorb the moment as it's happening, because it may never happen again. So you should enhance those memories. You know, you should appreciate those memories. So I do that all the time when my mother because when my mother got into her 70s and 80s and I would go back and visit with her, sometimes she'd be just sitting on the couch and I'd take a look at her and just frame the memory in my mind, the image of her sitting on the couch alive because I knew that someday I wouldn't have that. That, that would be gone. So I recorded kind of in my mind. And I did this many times on the phone. I, as she would be talking, I would just listen to her voice. Because I thought someday, you know, that's not going to be there. And so I was thinking about her today. She died last April. And I was thinking about that. And it's just a warm feeling. I have that memory, you know, of listening and hearing her voice. That's one of the biggest advantages of having HSAM, where you can capture that moment and have that moment that doesn't exist anymore. But the memory is so indelible and so ingrained that it does, it's with you. It does exist. So because you can sort of turn up maybe the saturation of that memory and make it even more memorable, do you think that if you were faced with something traumatic or painful or shocking, is there any degree to which you could do the opposite and unsaturate that memory? Of course, not totally, because that's against the nature of the beast. But do you think there's within you the capacity to make it less vivid when it's hard. Yeah, I just just don't think about it. That's basically, yeah, just don't. One of the more painful memories was the last time we talked to her, and it was emotional for all of us. And so I'm talking about this, and it's fine to talk about it. I'm not getting that emotional. But it's not like I want to think about that day. I'm aware of it. It's there. I'm not going to forget about it, but I'm not going to dwell on it or, like, keep thinking about it because what's the point? You know, but because mainly because there were all those other days that uh, supersede, you know, these days I talked to her or the days I could visit her at her apartment or her house that I had with her that supersede that. And I appreciated those days because I was totally cognizant and totally aware that those days wouldn't be around. You should appreciate that, uh, you know, really absorb that memory, really, uh, you know, soak that memory in. I'm not saying you do it all the time or consistently, but, you know, take a moment to go to appreciate the moment, to embrace the moment, to salivate the moment that you have, the good time that you have, because it may not last. If you'd had a much harder life, do you think you wish you wouldn't have HSAM? Uh, possibly. I think a lot of it was, uh, I, I mean, it's not like I've had an easy life. I think that. To me, it's like, uh, you know, I think it's your approach to life. I think if my life was worse, I, I still think that it wouldn't be bad having HSAM. If I knew that I could gain knowledge and wisdom by losing the HSAM ability, then I would take that exchange in a minute. Well, Bob Petrella, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me.
Remember when Bob said he thought that September 4th, 1998 was when Google was incorporated and I could look it up? Well, of course I looked it up. And there's no reason after my conversation with Dr. McGaw and my conversation with Bob that I should have been surprised when I saw that, yeah, Google was incorporated on September 4th, 1998. But when I saw it pop up on my screen, it took my breath away. No matter how much I understand what Bob is capable of, it still bends my brain to think about what it must be like in his mind. How the world and the future and the past looks different when everything is on record like that. So what if you had this ability, but your life and all these memories were really just getting started? After the break... Even though I have like such a strong connection to the past, I think especially in the past couple of years in high school, I've become definitely more future-oriented person. So I definitely try to keep myself out of the past and into the future. I think that helps a lot. Meet a high school senior with HSAM who's ready to take this ability and make the absolute most of it. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're finding out what it's like to have highly superior autobiographical memory, or HSAM. Only about 60 people in the world are known to have this condition, and 18-year-old Alyssa A. checks all the boxes. She's a senior at Wadsworth High School in Wadsworth, Ohio, and I asked her about when she first knew that her memory wasn't quite like everyone else's. I think of my family and I, we've always known that I've had a pretty good memory, but I think when, I think we first heard of the word HCM and kind of realized I had it when I was 11 and we first saw the 60 Minutes program. It wasn't the first one. It was the second one. It was called Memory Wizards. And I saw when it aired on April 20th, 2014, which was Easter Sunday. So when you were seeing that group of people being interviewed and they are sounding like you, what did it feel like to hear these stories from people who've been experiencing life a a lot like you have? It was pretty incredible. Like I, I, these people, like I really thought they, a lot of them, I think, think a lot like me. And it was amazing just to learn that there are a lot of other people out there who have experiences with memory. They're similar to mine. So even before you saw that 60 Minutes show, Was there a moment where you thought, huh, I am not like anybody else around me in this sense? I wouldn't say there was one particular moment there, but there were definitely times I look, I would like look back and I'd be like, oh, you remember when that happened on this day and what happened? This is what happened the day before and the day after. And here it's like the exact date that it happened. And my, I think like I, my family, they like wouldn't remember the exact date. So I definitely felt that that was like something that made it a little bit different. I know I have a like a better memory than like most people, but when I when I watched the 60 Minutes, I think the time that aired, it was about 56 people who had been identified. I was like, whoa! I had no idea this was like that rare. How do you feel about having this rare condition? I think that I do have it for some purpose. I know through some of the people in the media I've been able to talk to already, I've gotten to talk and spread a little bit of awareness about neurodiversity. And because I'm 
I am neurodiverse myself. I was diagnosed as having Asperger's syndrome at age six. So I kind of get to have the opportunity to share my story a little bit and show people that being, you know, neurodiverse and maybe a little bit different isn't always a bad thing. When I say a date, like, for example, September 4th, 2018, what can you talk me through what happens in your mind? Like, what comes first? What pops up in your head when I say September 4th, 2018? I usually, when I say a date, what, ha- what happens is not even not necessarily that certain year, but what happens in like years past. So my mind kind of goes to September 4th, 2015, which was a Friday. And that was like probably one of the best days of my life because I found out that I'd gotten into a middle, one of my middle school's musicals that I'd been working really hard on my audition for. Yeah, then um, September 4th is 2018. That was another big week for me because I was, I was a very nerve wracking week because I would. I was working on my audition for um, my high school's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I auditioned for. Um, I thought it had gone horribly, but then I found out that I'd actually made the cast and gotten a pretty nice part. So yeah, I, September 4th, I think that's that's definitely a day I have a lot of emotion connected to, and I'm glad you picked it. That is wild, because first of all, I gave Bob that date, but a different year, and he also said that was a fantastic day for him, and it's a great day for me because that's my birthday. Oh, really? So it's weird that this day is freaking magical for you. Uh, I'm so glad. <laughs> Anything like September, because like my birthday is in September, mine, mine's September 20th. So whenever somebody says like a date, let's have September 20th or anything really around that day, I think those are always some pretty good days too. When you are kind of going back in your memory and accessing the details of that day, does it feel kind of like time travel? Like, are you are you back there in some way? I think I definitely have a lot more emotion connected to memories. Like, for example, I'm a really big fan of roller coasters. My family doesn't live super far from like Cedar Point. Whenever I see like a video of like a roller coaster at Cedar Point, I immediately get that feeling like I am back on that roller coaster. And whenever I like wake up on a day where say something really good or something really bad happened on that day, I, I always feel like I kind of relieve that emotion and what I was experiencing on that day. <laughs> I imagine that a lot of people, when they find out about your abilities, they find out it's something called HSAM, they say, that sounds awesome. In which ways are they totally right? I think that in my future career, this memory is really going to help me a lot. I want to become, I want to, I think I'm going to study business as an undergrad, then eventually go on to law school to become an attorney. And I think that uh, as an attorney, especially with somebody who has to deal with a lot of different cases and little details, I think that this memory is really going to help me in my career. Do you think that because you have H. Sam that you would make a fantastic eyewitness, like in court? I think I could make a pretty good witness just because I could connect like what happened on a certain event to make something that happened in the past. H. Sam, it's not the same thing as photographic memory, but um, but yeah, I do think just with being able to remember so many dates and stuff, I could really, I think I could be a pretty good witness. <laughs> in which ways... Is having HSAM really difficult? Since I have like such a strong com- emotional connection to dates and memories, it's like I whenever I think of like a day that's where something really bad happened, like whenever I wake up that day, I'm always kind of thinking, oh, you know, this day a few years ago, this happened or this happened. Other thing is I kind of wish like HSAM was more common because even though I've been able to connect with like a couple of HSAMers, they're like through like Facebook and Snapchat. I haven't really met one in person, even though I'd really like to. Hmm. When you wake up, like you said, in the morning and you think, well, this 
this painful thing happened on this day and this year, is there a way that you can kind of desaturate a memory? Is there any distance that you're able to put between you and that feeling, that memory? Even though I have like such a strong connection to the past, I think especially in the past couple of years in high school, I've become definitely more future oriented person. So instead of thinking, oh, you know, this horrible thing happened, I'm always thinking, how can I make today better? And how can making today better lead to tomorrow being better? And what kind of a future can I build for myself? So I definitely try to keep myself out of the past and into the future. I think that helps a lot. That's kind of a beautiful way to put it for anybody, right? Like we, even though I'm not going to remember today, 18 years from now, if I get to live that long in the same vividness that you remember it, the advice you're giving yourself and the effort you're putting into doing better now for later applies to me too. Like that's kind of, that's kind of powerful. Yeah. I think that this memory has really allowed me to look back or reflect on days. And I found that, you know, when I've been the most successful, it's usually when I'm, yeah, it's usually when I'm focusing on the future and how I can just make the day better. So it's something that's very important to me. If you had a harder life, do you think you would wish you didn't have H. Sam, or is it your attitude that you think would make it so having H. Sam is okay no matter what your life brings, no matter how hard it is? I think it's a combination of both. Like, I mean, I've I think I've had a pretty good life for the most part. You know, I've been very I've been very blessed to grow up, you know, in a very good home. But I mean, it hasn't been perfect. I've definitely had my ups and downs. I think a lot of it does have to do with attitude and the fact that I really learned to look both back and forwards on my life with a positive attitude. But yeah, I think if I were somebody who'd had a much harder life experiences, I think that, you know, my attitude towards having HCM would definitely be different. You've had a lot of media attention recently. Now you're going to be on Connecticut Public Radio, which means I don't know how you're going to walk out the house without, you know, the paparazzi. But how does it feel getting all this attention for this one aspect of yourself? It's strange in a way because this is something that has been a part of me for so long. But I don't know, it's kind of nice because it's given me the opportunity to catch up with some like friends who reach out, who have reached out to me. And, you know, I've gotten to meet some new people who are doing these interviews. So, I mean, I'm glad I get to share my story and talk a little bit about neurodiversity and what that means to me. And so I am, I am happy to have had these opportunities. Do you feel like having H. Sam in some way or another currently is defining you? I feel like um, in a way, yes, because um, that's kind of, that's the reason why I've kind of gotten all this media attention. But in my mind, no, it doesn't, at least in my mind, at least it doesn't define me just because I've I have a lot of things that play a role in my identity and I have many different passions that I think have also helped me to become the person that I am today. In what ways are you glad to have H. Sam and all this coverage of you? I think it's honestly, I think it's just kind of cool to have some, to have something that makes me unique and isn't so that I'm not exactly like other people. I have something, you know, a little a little bit different about me and my identity that maybe the vast, vast majority of the population, you know, doesn't really have, or they can't relate to. I think it's a great icebreaker in a way. Yeah. And a way for people to maybe learn a little bit about me when they first meet me. So. yeah. Not only do you have H Sam, but you're also, as you said, a person with Asperger's and I can hear how important it is for you to talk about neurodiversity. So Tell me why it's so important for you to talk about all this. Neurodiversity is a different way of thinking about neurological differences. And I think of today, a lot of times things like um, 
autism, Asperger's syndrome, like ADHD, dyslexia, a lot of those things tend to be looked at from like a very like a medical standpoint, like, no, we have to get rid of these differences. You know, neurotypical is, you know, the perfect or correct way to be. While neurodiversity suggests more of an, like an equality between brains. And that by identifying the strengths of neurodiverse individuals, we can definitely improve our society. And uh, what they're finding is in a lot of companies that tend to hire more neurodiverse individuals, their companies have greatly improved because neurodiverse individuals may realize details that a neurotypical person might miss. And many of us tend to be very passionate and have a lot of zeal for what we're interested in and for in our careers. So I would definitely want people to see the value in neurodiverse individuals and consider how neurodiversity and embracing it can improve the world around us. What do you think people are so afraid of when it comes to neurodiversity? I think that there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and like, I mean, I don't, there's still a lot of things that, about neurodiversity that I'm still learning about, but I think that just by asking questions, you know, having, having conversations and just finding ways to increase communication between people of different neurotypes, we can really create a much more beautiful world. Well, thank you so much, Alyssa A for talking with me. Oh yeah. Well, thank, well, thank you so much for this opportunity. A coda to our conversations today. It's tempting for me to claim that September 4th is a magical date for these two people because it's my birthday. And while that does pretty much explain everything, it's also important for me to be as thorough and honest as possible with you. So you should also take into consideration that September 4th is such a powerful date because it's also Beyonce's birthday. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Tolarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to shows about things like what we can learn from children who have a rare disease and the folks who love them, what it's like to not be capable of feeling physical pain, how the ways we train our dogs says a lot about ourselves, and the psychology, history, and contradictions behind many superstitions, visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag AudaciousPublic. Thanks for listening and for remembering this show for as long as you will. <laughs>